Within the university, there are two entities that have some kind of a statutory autonomy, although they are part of the university. And these two entities are the university hospital and the tech transfer office. I'm not naive, of course. This autonomy lasts as long as the results are being delivered. But still, the fact that the university trusts our team to do what we are doing, and as long as we deliver a good job, basically the message of the university is, well done, carry on. That is very rewarding to myself and my team. Paul van Doon is the general manager at Leuven Research and Development, the tech transfer office of KU Leuven, a Belgian university with a rather unique framework that allows faculty to generate income for their labs without incorporating spin-offs. He's here to tell us more about this, as well as his vision of having universities ranked based on impact, what changes he's seen in the more than two decades he's spent in tech transfer so far, and how one of his favourite spin-outs has helped revitalise the region's historical strengths in bicycle production. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Terry. To start with, an easy question, hopefully easy. Can you give me an overview of KU Leuven Research and Development, perhaps with some headline figures? Sure. Leuven Research and Development is actually the tech transfer office of uh, the University of Leuven, and it was created in 1972, clearly before my time. But from what I've heard from people, it must not have been that easy at that point in time. Don't forget that in the 70s, for a lot of universities, and ours was no exception, reaching out to industry was not so evident. Uh, research needed to stay pure, what needed to be Sure that research was not contaminated by too much commercial contact, but hey, anyway, they did it. And next year we will celebrate our 50th anniversary. Like most European tech transfer offices, we have three activities under our umbrella. The first one, and that is where it all started in 1972, was collaborating in all kinds of ways with existing companies varying from a small consulting arrangement to contract research, collaborative research. Altogether, we have several thousands of new agreements every year. It still today is our main activity. Second activity is intellectual property, patenting, licensing. Last year, we had about 140 granted patents and about 100 million euro licensing income. And then sometimes the best way to get a technology, to get research results into the market, into society, is just create a spin-out company. And in that third segment, usually we have between five and 10 spin-out companies per year. Does that make you one of the oldest tech transfer offices in Europe? Well, I don't have all the data of the colleagues in mind. I know that the tech transfer office of Max Planck was about one year earlier than us. And I know that because last year I was invited for their 50th anniversary, which was then cancelled because of COVID. So I know Max Planck was slightly earlier than us. But apart from that, probably we were one of the first, yeah. Pioneers. One aspect of how you operate that I find particularly interesting is the concept of creating a virtual entity that captures the income from a professor's commercialized research. The money is obviously legally the universities, but you let the professor in question decide how they want to spend that income. So for example, on a piece of equipment or project they couldn't otherwise get funding for. And you even let multidisciplinary entities across faculties happen. Where did this idea come from and what has the feedback been like from faculty? Has that increased engagement with you from researchers? 
The system is indeed that for every professor who um, wants to do something commercial, we create for him or her what you could almost compare as a virtual company under the umbrella of the university. It's a virtual entity. We call that a division. And for each such division, we do the bookkeeping as if it is a separate legal entity, only it is not. Meaning that for every single professor, all the commercial income, but also all the commercial expenses will land on that divisional account that is under his or her supervision. Every professor has the right within our university to do so. This means that these accounts are not tied into faculties, not tied into departments. It's really linked to the person who is in charge of generating the income and executing the respective contracts. Whatever profit is generated on these accounts, he or she can spend under the guidelines of what the three aims of the universities are, research, education, and tech transfer. The difference is that, for example, if a person wants to hire an additional lab technician or an additional uh, admin assistant, it's his call. He doesn't have to ask his dean or the head of department. He or she can himself determine, you know, this is my money and I'm going to spend it in this or this way. Such a division can also be maintained or created interdisciplinary. So people from different faculties, for example, a division around medical imaging can be composed of a person from the electrotechnical department, a person from the faculty of medicine, a person from the physics department, who then are going to do tech transfer activities together with a joint budget across the barriers of faculties and departments around, in this case, medical imaging. The professors are not, how should I put it, rewarded when it comes to promotion or tenure, depending on what happens on these accounts. One can only be promoted or tenured if one has excellent research, if one does do excellent education. But whatever happens within these divisions is some kind of a tool for them to do better research. Quite some professors spend this income on really blue sky research completely out-of-the-box research topics that maybe they have difficulties of getting financed or getting funded elsewhere. A lot of gap funding has also been done with that money. You know that there is the so-called valley of debt in tech transfer. Research results come up to a certain point but still need to brought one or two steps further in order to be able to attract the interest of a company, for example. Well, in quite some cases, these one or two steps it's not always easy to find incubation financing for that. In quite some cases in our universities, this gap funding is being taken care of by the professor himself with the money he or she has in his or her division. This also means that if, for example, a person under the supervision of a professor steps up and says, well, I really would like to create a spin-off company with this or this technology, in most cases, the professor's are very open to that because they know that once such a spin-off company is created under their umbrella, the shares that the university will receive from this creation of this spin-off will end up on their division account. And if these shares then ever are to be sold, again, they can use the money to do further research, to hire additional people, to expand their lab, etc., etc. And the last element that, that we can also see is that in comparison with probably a lot of other universities, we don't have an awful lot of professors 
who do private consulting outside of the university. Most of our professors have their consulting performed under the umbrella of the university for the simple reason that they know that whatever comes in from these consulting activities, they can use. It's quote-unquote their money, not legally, of course. It's Everything is owned by the university, but they can decide what to do with it. This system was created in 72 also. I have to say that there was not too much debate at that point in time for the simple reason that there was no subject matter to discuss. There were not a lot of commercial income streams. I'm pretty sure that if we would not have this system today and we would try to create that system today, that would be a hell of a job for the simple reason that if all these funding, if all these income streams would belong to faculties or departments, it would almost be impossible to then take that away and put that under the supervision of individual PIs. Today, it's not a topic anymore for the simple reason that most of the deans, most of the heads of departments, they also have their own division, uh, meaning that the system is really seen as something of the professors themselves. Yeah, This is their system. So it is not something that the faculties are opposed to because all the faculty members have their own division too. It's born by PIs themselves, so to speak. That's fascinating. Does that maybe sometimes stop spin-offs from being created? If it's maybe not as easy, but if it's as straightforward to have this virtual entity without dealing with company incorporation and, and hiring that staff? And I would not say that it stops spin-offs from being created, but on average, if I compare our spin-offs with the spin-offs I see being created in other universities, I would say that on average our spin-offs are slightly longer incubated because through this system, they can have their first clients, they can have their first commercial activities, they can almost act as if they already have a spin-off company, meaning that most probably if we would spin out at the same point in time as most other universities, the number of our spin-offs would be slightly higher. What we see right now is that quite some of the spin-off projects that are in incubation mode and then fail because you know the market test is not successful or the pricing is not correct or whatever, well, these projects, they will never be created for the simple reason that they fail already before it comes to an actually incorporation of a company. Hmm. That is interesting. Does that mean the survival rate of your spin-offs is generally quite high? Yeah, this is a question that I get every year from our board of directors. <laughs> <laughs> the survival rate of our spin-offs is uh, more than 80%, which for early stage high-tech companies is way too high, of course. As a result, my board says, well, you're way too prudent in creating spin-offs. You should be much more aggressive. My reply is, well, I don't think we are too prudent, but... Most of the very early stage failures we have, they happen under the umbrella of our university. So it, it's a little bit the consequence, effectively, of the system we have. Yeah, That makes perfect sense. You've also spoken before on wanting universities globally measured based on the long-term impact they have. The UK has somewhat implemented that with the Research Excellence Framework. Does Belgium have anything comparable? Or if not, should it be solved on a country level? Or should it be solved maybe on a European level? Yeah, it is my firm belief that long-term impact or even short-term impact in some cases is effectively what the university should be measured on. 
you can see that the climate is not there generally, except in circumstances like, for example, the COVID pandemic that we've seen over the last one year and a half. At that point in time, suddenly one looks at universities in terms of what are the impact that the universities have when it comes to COVID-19. At that point in time, nobody cares how many patents have you filed around COVID. The question is, what has the effective result been of what you have been doing in this arena? I really like the REF system in the UK. In Belgium, we don't have something comparable, even to the opposite. The, the system that we have is that part of the government funding that we get as a university depends on some really traditional parameters, the number of spin-offs, the number of patents, the number of granted patents, turnover you get with companies, etc., etc. I don't like that, to be honest, because you know what you measure is what you get. And it's definitely not difficult to create a new spin-off company every week. But the question is, what's the impact of the spin-off that you create? I agree with what you hint to, namely that it would be better to have this, I should put it, to regulate this on a European level. I don't see this happening immediately for the simple reason, he who pays the piper calls the tune. In other words, a lot of national governments provide funding to their universities and they would like to be in charge of the parameters that they impose on their universities. This being said, the work that, for example, Alison Campbell has done in order to try to find some harmonized ways to measure the universities and the research institutes, I think that is absolutely, absolutely the way to go. The work that Alison has provided for almost consists of a manual how to do it. I would only support it if it would go in that direction. I don't think we are there yet, but every single step like this report and also like the UK who have put forward the REF, all these things help to improve the climate and improve the awareness that that is the direction we should be going, definitely. I had Alison on this podcast a few months ago as well and her talking about harmonizing those metrics, how initially there was resistance even from tax transfer offices and then everyone kind of came around to the idea. So maybe that's the way to go. <laughs> Convince the tech transfer offices first and then hopefully have that trickle up. And But yes, as you say, it's not going to happen overnight or anytime soon, probably. Yeah, and, and it always surprises me again and again that even within quite some university managements still are reluctant to step away from the monetary parameters of technology transfer. Um, in all the nice brochures that you see printed and all, and all the nice websites of a lot of universities, one indicates the social missions and you know how important it is to have impact and nice examples are being shown. But if I hear about a lot of interactions that quite some of my colleagues have with their university management, it still evolves a lot around how much money do you make with the patents, how much spin-offs have you created, etc. So it is not only at the level of the governments that there still is some awareness to be created, also in quite some cases within the universities itself, I'm afraid. I suppose money and the number of spin-offs is something that is very easy to measure just because they are pure numbers and measuring impact. I mean, that is also numbers, but they are significantly harder to gather in what counts as impact. That is exactly the reply that I got about two or three years ago when I had a debate with our national government or regional government. 
saying, well, this is the way we should be going. Well, they don't like it because numbers are very binary. You can measure it. And depending on that, you can distribute an amount of money. You can have these numbers audited. It's black or white. And that's it. Of course, that's true. But that's really, really a simplification of, you know, of the reality, as Ellison indicates very nicely in her report. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I certainly wasn't saying that. I agree with that view, but I can see where politicians come from when they say those things. What is working well in Belgium's ecosystem? I assume there are things that are working well. Yeah, sure. I think in general, looking at the triple helix, it is working well. We have on a relatively small geographic area, a nice number of high quality research institutions that work together quite intensively, I have to say. There's a healthy competition, obviously, uh, but still they work together in a a good way. Also, the interactions with companies is not only good, but also already long-standing. This is not something of the last couple of years. This is really already ongoing for a couple of decades. If you take a look at European statistics, the collaborations between the research institutions in our area and industry is one of the most intense in Europe. That's a good sign. Also, the government invests quite heavily in R&D, both regional government and national government. The city of Leuven, by the way, was voted European Innovation Capital of Europe last year by the Commission, so that's also an indication. And what I really like is that one talks more and more about the quadruple helix, in other words, also involving citizens into this triple helix. Well, if I see, for example, that Two years ago, there was a major research project led by one of our universities to have citizens measure via sensors the quality of air in their surroundings. Uh, There was a massive response. Everybody was following the results, following the development and the conclusions. And last year, well, no, this year, actually, the same was done for measuring the heat and the drought in the lawns of the gardens of people. Again, massive response. So you can see that R&D and innovation is alive with also some focus on some specific segments. For example, life science in our region. The life science arena is a pretty thriving arena with quite some actors capital available. So no, we can't complain when it comes to that. I quite like the idea of having citizens that are that engaged in science and participating in science as well. That is amazing. What is your view of the EU's ecosystem, if you have one, and is there anything that you would change on a broader European scale? Well, I think there are a couple of good elements in Europe. The innovation instruments like Horizon Europe, European Research Council are okay. They are linking the necessary actors. Still, I think there are quite some elements that are up for improvement. At the end of the day, Europe is and remains a collection of individual countries, meaning that we can't really talk about a common European market. Take a look at what happens in certification and regulation. We've set nice steps, but we are not there. Same with reimbursement compared to major geographical areas like China or the US. You have a huge, huge patient population, while in Europe, Time over and again, you need to go country by country for a reimbursement. This is something that is weighing on innovation quite clearly. When it comes to the availability of early stage 
capital. I don't think it is all gloom and doom. It depends a little bit from region to region, but all in all, I think that definitely compared with 15 or 20 years ago, there is way more capital available for early stage projects. Sometimes if I hear people complain about the fact that there is not enough early stage capital available and they explain their project to me, uh, you know, I have the reflection and the reaction. You know, if really everybody says no to your project, maybe you should have a look at your project. Sometimes it is a little bit too easy and too subjective to say there should be more early stage capital. I think where we do have a problem in Europe is the later stage capital. Investment companies that are readily available to invest 20, 30, 40 million in a single file in order to really scale it up, there compared with some other major areas in the world, we lack a little bit of firepower, I would say. Also, what worries me a little bit is all the regulatory affairs I see upcoming. Think, for example, about GDPR. Of course, I'm the very first one to say that privacy is very important. Personal data should be protected, etc. That's all true. And we should not be too uncareful when it comes to these elements. But at the same point in time, the hurdles that we see pop up today just to be able to work with a set of patient data. We see that in some international projects, we see from time to time multinationals just avoiding some European universities taking part in that research for the simple reason that they know that it will be a nightmare to make available the patient data or make available the the patient material. And again, I'm the very first one to say that we should protect patients and their privacy. But I have the feeling that at some point in time, we're overdoing some red tape in this respect, which is kind of starting to hamper the research. So it's a delicate balance, but it is a balance we should really keep track of. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Anonymized patient data sets. You could come up with some phenomenal treatments if you had the data sets that you could use. but if companies don't want to cooperate with European universities because that is a problem. Saving one hand by cutting off the other, it's a bit of an odd situation that the EU has put itself into. Yeah, exactly. And one should not forget that at the end of the day, the goal of the research that we as universities and research institutions are performing at the end of the day should be developing new treatments to the benefit of the patients. So that's what makes the balance even more delicate. I want to move back to Kao Leuven a bit. You have a range of fascinating funds and incubators at the university as well. Gemma Frisius Fund, which has been around since 1997. So I think that makes it one of the oldest seed funds as well for university. And the Centre for Drug Design and Discovery, or CD3, among others. Can you tell me a little bit more about those initiatives as well? For me, both initiatives are illustrations of what I think the mentality of a tech transfer office should be, namely... Think proactively about which gaps are there in your system and how can I accommodate them? How can I bridge these gaps? Both of these instruments have been born out of a need. In the 90s, early stage venturing scene in and around Leuven was a desert. There was no early stage venture capital available. The few actors that were available there after the dot-com bubble burst in 2000 even they disappeared. So it was a very, very difficult period. 
And at that point in time, the university, well, the tech transfer office, LRD, decided why not try to create our own venture capital, which happened. It's a joint venture between the tech transfer office, uh, LRD, and two financial institutions, which, to be honest, when it was created in 1997, I, I did not have the impression that these financial institutions were overly enthusiastic. They kind of did it because they liked the university, probably also because the university was one of their major clients. I won't say that the investment in this fund came out of their marketing budget, but still it was not a decision that was, how should I put it, financially calculated probably. However, uh, 25 years later, we still have the Gamma Fisius Fund with the same partners. So this worked out perfectly. In the meantime, the Gamma Fisius Fund has invested in more than 60 spin-off companies of the university. And again, still with the same partners, so uh, they wouldn't be in the game for 25 years if they didn't like it, I think. When it comes to CD3, that's a little bit of a comparable story. Let's say 2005, 2006, we saw at several occasions that we had really nice projects, high potential projects, which were faced with this valley of debt, as I mentioned earlier. They were all drug discovery projects, and when we approached companies with them, Every time they said, well, this is a really nice project, but you should be able to bring it one or two steps further, and then we're interested. Yeah, but bringing these projects one or two steps further, we didn't have the funding, we didn't have the expertise, so we were stuck there somewhere. What we try to do is set up an incubator composed of two elements, people and money, and basically the system is pretty straightforward. So... This incubator selects the best projects within the university, brings them one or two steps further, and the arrangement with the biology lab where the project comes from is that up front a certain distribution key is being discussed and agreed upon. And if CD3 can actually commercialize the project and, for example, turn it into a license or create a spin-off out of it, Whatever comes out of it, whether it's shares or royalties or anything else, is then distributed according to this predefined distribution key between the lab and the incubator. We started doing that for the university as some kind of a pilot, as a tryout. We invested together with the European Investment Fund 8 million in 2007. By now, we've raised together with the European Investment Fund more than 80 million already. Numerous licenses and spin-offs have been created out of this. And the vast majority of the leads that come into CD3 don't come from our own university anymore. So we work for universities in the Netherlands, in the UK, in France, in Germany, and also even for small biotech companies who have, for example, a pipeline of two or three different elements, and they only have money to develop two out of them. Well, if then they have an asset for which they say, well, we don't want to sell it because you never know, but we want to see it developed. That can be done by making an arrangement with CD3. And then again, the same system, according to this predefined distribution key, any results are being shared. Leuven also invests in third-party funds, including those raised by other institutions like IMEC or VIB. How important is this with regards to having funding available to your own portfolio? 
This is actually a result of the system that I mentioned earlier, this division system where all the commercial results and income is being pooled. Well, within the tech transfer office, the financial reserves of all these different divisions are being invested by us, by the tech transfer office. And part of that investment, we invest in other venture capital funds. We do that for a couple of reasons. First of all, for the return, obviously. We also do that for the networking. These VCs, both locally and internationally, they are a little bit our eyes and ears. Most technology sectors are evolving very, very rapidly. So for us, it's very interesting via an investment in, for example, a VC in Boston to get a feeling continuously of what's hot and what's not. What are the major research trends? What is wanted by industry? What is wanted by investors, etc., etc. And lastly, we also bear in mind that ideally an investment in one of these VCs reinforces the ecosystem around Leuven. That's one of the reasons why we've also invested in the venture capital funds of IMEC, in the venture capital funds of VIB, the Flemish Institute of Biotechnology, because there again, the stronger these institutions become, the better for the ecosystem and the better for our own university. We have plentiful joint spin-offs with these research institutes also. So there's cross-fertilization, and we always try to, to reinforce one another. One example that I can give is last week, we decided to invest in a venture capital company specialized in blockchain. For us, this was a deliberate choice because we feel that also as a tech transfer office, our knowledge on this fast-moving technology domain is suboptimal. So through that investment in that venture capital company, we will also be updated on what's going on in this segment, which trends are there to watch, etc. So it serves multi-purposes for us. Yeah, I remember coming across one joint spin-off that comes to mind with IMEG, I think it was Pulsify Medical. That's raised quite a bit of funding as well. I want to talk about your personal journey a bit as well. You've been with Leuven for around two decades. What first got you into this job? Saying that now is a little bit embarrassing, actually, but... <laughs> At that point in time, nothing uh, for the simple reason that when I was first probed uh, whether or not I would be interested in joining Leuven Research and Development uh, and starting working there, I declined. Uh, I, at that <laughs> point in time, I was still working in industry. And in all honesty, I, I did not, apart from my own studies, I did not know a university from inside. So for me, a university was something with a lot of red tape which was not really familiar to me. And it was only after the second or even the third time that I was asked whether I absolutely was not interested, that I started to do my homework a little bit. And actually what really convinced me was the feeling of an absolute greenfield, the endless possibilities that there were of all these varieties of technology, continuously emerging possibilities. Being creative with that, at that point in time, I was working myself at a venture capital company. And, you know, at a given point in time, I had the feeling that been there, done that. I really liked the job, but I had the feeling that it was more of the same. And looking at the possibilities in a tech transfer environment, for me, that really sounded challenging. And I've never been much of a career planner. When I joined Leuven Research and Development, for me, it was a little bit of a leap of faith because it was a, some kind of an unknown territory. And somewhere in the back of my mind, probably I thought, well, we'll see how it goes. And 
if it doesn't work out, I can move on after two or three years. But hey, here we are 20 years later. What has made you stick around in tech transfer generally and specifically at Leuven? Most importantly, passion, I would say. Seeing these possibilities on a daily basis, being faced with new developments, young people, even if you're only a very small piece of the puzzle, but being part of, for example, a new drug that actually is on the market and saves people. For example, the, the most commonly sold anti-age drug comes from Leuven. Well, if you can be part of that journey, uh, there are a lot of days that you think, you know, why the hell am I doing this job? But if you can be part of such a journey that gives you such satisfaction and adrenaline for you know months and months to come it's again the same word they're creating impact seeing the result that it makes a change it does change something in society that's really really very rewarding i think specifically in leuven what i also appreciate is leuven research and development as a tech transfer office has a very big degree of autonomy within the university there are two entities that have some kind of a statutory autonomy, although they are part of the university. And these two entities are the university hospital and the tech transfer office. I'm not naive, of course. This autonomy lasts as long as the results are being delivered. But still, the fact that the university trusts our team to do what we are doing, and as long as we deliver a good job, basically the message of the university is, well done, carry on. That is very rewarding to myself and my team, I think. What changes have you seen over the course of these 20-odd years? In all honesty, if I take a look at my job when I started in 2000 and I take a look at my job now, it's a completely different job. And that has everything to do with the environment that I work in. First of all, even in Leuven, where the office already existed for 30 years before I joined the office, I can see that Technology transfer, that knowledge transfer, truly has become the third mission of the university. We are not seen anymore as some kind of an administrative hurdle or an administrative desk where you need to get your rubber stamp because otherwise you can't conclude a contract. No, it's research, education, and technology transfer. If I take a look at how our own university looks at technology transfer, this third mission truly has become embedded within the university. That makes all of a change, also as to the motivation of the people. If the people in the office feel that the institution that they work in does not consider the tech transfer office as just another administrative department, but really considers it as a crucial part of the mission of the university, well, that makes all the change. And that definitely has improved and changed in the last 20 years, not only in our own university, but in a lot of other universities, I think. The speed is another one. Given the rapid development of most technologies, it's a much more hasty environment today than it was 20 years ago. If you have a certain research result, there is a certain window you have in order to get to the market. And if you miss that window, the window is closed because there will already be another piece of technology creative destruction, continuously new things. And that pace has only increased. Also, the level of interdisciplinarity, the times where 
the dusty professor at the end of the hallway on his own uh, created wonderful things. That's not anymore today. If I take a look at most of our successful spin-off companies, if I take a look at most of our successful licenses and other collaborations, a really big chunk of them are the result of interdisciplinary research. This is just the name of the game today, I would almost say. And last but not least, this is not necessarily a positive thing. Everything has become way, way more complex. The number of actors that you face has increased plentifold. Regulations have increased. For me, this is a challenge also a little bit because the kind of people I want to see in my office are people who have themselves some kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. And that does not necessarily go hand in hand with complying with a lot of red tape, obviously. So pushing my people in a lot of boxes that need to be ticked for all kinds of regulations, it's a little bit counterproductive and it does not help to motivate the right kind of people. Everything is also way more legalized these days than 15 years ago. The latter evolution is not necessarily a positive one, but it is what it is. You kind of touched on my next question a little bit there, but what would you say to someone thinking of become a tech transfer officer today? I would give a double message. First of all, I would say, go for it. It's the most wonderful job you can dream of. But at the same point in time, I would say, before you take the jump, go and talk to a number of people who are in the profession, because a lot of people underestimate the complexity of the job. I know I did when I started 20 years ago. Uh, you know, how difficult can it be to bring research results from point A to point B? It's plain and simple. Well, how wrong I was. So go talk to people. It is not always an easy environment that you have to work in. There are a lot of stakeholders. You are considered in quite some cases as almost a public item. Everybody thinks that they have some say in what you're doing. And there's always more work. If you act in a proactive way as a tech transfer officer, you will always create more work, meaning that at the end of the day, how frustrating you might think it is, but there is always more work than you will be able to cope. So these are also elements you need to bear in mind and you need to face them. So that's why I say I would give a double message. Absolutely go for it. I can only recommend it. But do go and talk to a couple of people so that you really understand what it entails, what it is and what it is not. Wise words. Something different. How do you fare when it comes to gender and ethnic diversity in terms of engagement and your spin-off portfolio? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work to do there. It is high on the agenda today, and so it should be. But if I take a look at, for example, the spin-offs that are being created, still today, you know, female entrepreneurs are rather the exception than the rule, which is one of the reasons why I think also as a tech transfer office, we have a role to play here. And just to give you one example, the coaching team that we have established for our student entrepreneurship program is all female. And this is a deliberate choice because we want to send out a message. We want to voice a message. It is a matter of continuously keep on creating the same awareness, let's put it that way, and also trying to put on the stage role models. You can talk as much as you want to, but the best way to 
inspire people is get them in touch with role models, with people who have done it. And then I'm not talking about the CEO of a multinational somewhere in the States or somewhere in, in India. Put on the stage a person that is recognizable for the audience. Young people who have started their own company, who have done it, although maybe they don't tick all of the traditional boxes. It's a continuous awareness process. How important of a consideration are ESG environmental social governance factors when you create companies? Yeah, a little bit likewise. For us, very important. Obviously, as a tech transfer office, you need to work with the clay that you find within the university. That's the material you have to work with. But also here, try to model things as much as possible around these ESG. For example, business plan contest that we organize every year. The last edition that we organized two months ago, we thought, well, why not make it exclusively open for spin-off projects, for business plans that work around the sustainable development goals of the UN? There was some hesitation because we thought, well, Will there be enough candidates if we limit it to projects who are really centered around sustainable development goals? The opposite was true. Uh, There was a really nice influx, a lot of enthusiastic people, nice projects and nice winners also. Since about a year ago, and that's another example, we work within our office with a dedicated team that has as its sole task to see whether the technologies that we come across To what extent can they be applied in the social economy, in the sound? In other words, to what extent can they be useful? Can they be applied away from the traditional commercial pathways? And the jury is still out. We have started this project about eight or nine months ago. We will do an evaluation, let's say, somewhere in the course of next year. But there again, it is our duty, I think. It is our task to actually really mine for, you know, the social aims also. And in this way, also inspiring researchers to start thinking about it themselves. Slightly following on from that, my favorite question, and people always hate it. What is your favorite (laughs) spin-off? I can understand why you say that it's your favorite question. And I can even more understand why people always hate it. (laughs) It's it's a little bit of a dirty question, Thierry. Um, Thank you. There's too much to choose, obviously, but you will get this answer all the time. If there's one recent example that I would need to pick, I would pick Reinforced. Reinforced is a spin-off company from our material science department. What they have developed is actually a new carbon fiber composite. It's as light as carbon, but as strong as steel. So a completely new material. And their first product is an unbreakable bike frame. After that, they are going for automotive and aeronautics. But what I like about it is, again, the interdisciplinary nature. It's a combination between material science and production technology. But most important, what I like about it is, at least in our region, bike production was old industry uh, in the sense that we used to have a very thriving industry in bike production factories that has disappeared almost completely to low-cost countries. And what we see right now is that through this technology, we see locally re-emerge of this old industry. So it does not always have to be 
nanotechnology or deep life science spin-offs that can make the difference. This is a scientific breakthrough that actually led to the fact that what was considered as lost industry or old industry, that that part of the economic activity is reintroduced again in the region, including the employment, etc., etc. So that for me is an example of what, again, impact can be out of a university. That is amazing. That answer is why I like asking this question. Usually it brings forth the very unusual companies that you wouldn't think of otherwise. We are almost out of time. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you want people to know? Well, I would almost be afraid that you ask me another dirty question, Thierry. So uh, (laughs) no, I'm fine. We're good to go. Awesome. Well, in that case, thank you very much, Paul. It's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Most welcome. My pleasure. Talking Tech Transfer is hosted by me, Thierry Hales. It is produced by Global University Venturing, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find us at globaluniversityventuring.com, on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing, or on Twitter at GU Venturing. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In Ear Production. You can find them on inearproduction.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an interview. We'd also really love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or if you share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps us grow our audience. You can also reach out to me directly with feedback. Just email thehelis at globaluniversityventuring.com. That is T-H-E-L-E-S at globaluniversityventuring.com. Until next time, have a great week, everyone. Goodbye.